Here in the nation's capital, there is anxiety and concern, but no outward sign of panic. As a matter of fact, there are signs of normalcy. I think I should get out among your people, become familiar with the basis for these strange, unreasoning attitudes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP, the Intermillennium Media Project Podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And we've watched another movie. We have rewatched a movie. Yes, we have. You. This is not the first time you've seen this, is it? No, this is actually not even the second time you've shown <laughs> me this movie, excited to show me this movie. Yeah, this is kind of where this podcast began, isn't it? This, this is the this third. Kind of <laughs> which I am... I'm interested in getting to see this multiple times, but absolutely. This is one of those origin episodes in that sense where I know this movie is not just cinematically important, but I could tell it, it got you excited and you wanted to share it with me. And I got to enjoy having it shared with me and get to experience it and study it all on my own in doing so. This is one of those movies where yeah, it, it clearly is the kind of thing that led to this podcast, but I knew we wanted to do it, but I've kind of been putting it off because I wanted to make sure we did it justice. But now I could not resist doing an episode about it now because I've seen this now twice in the past week. A few days ago, I watched it with you. Absolutely. And a few days before that, Mrs. Darling Wife and I saw it at the Robert H. Goddard Planetarium in Roswell, New Mexico. Oh, goodness. Where we were there for the 75th, well, it was the 25th Roswell UFO Festival, occurring on the 75th anniversary of the 1947 reported Roswell incident. And that was a weird, fun time. And it was a strange and interesting setting in which to be watching the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still in a planetarium. Yeah, which is kind of interesting because this is... It's a movie about aliens, but this feels like the least alien movie. <laughs> it's very much about people through the eyes of of a of a person who is not from Earth. Yes. This is this is a strangely human story in that sense. For anybody who hasn't seen this, well, first of all, turn off this podcast and go watch it. Oh, yes, I'm tipping my hand. I think it's already clear from what we've said. This is not a movie we're going to say don't screen. At least I'm not. But if just in case you haven't seen this and you're still listening, spaceship lands on Earth. A a very human-looking alien is on board, along with a very dangerous, very large robot. And this alien brings a message. Essentially, you guys are working on nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. You're also working on rockets. We didn't care when your problems were your problems, but now your problems are the problems of everybody on all the other planets. So knock it off and join us or else. Yeah. This is. There's a lot about this movie I love, but if we're jumping into it on that angle, this is a movie about aliens showing up and saying, we are so advanced, we can employ bigger stick diplomacy better than you can. <laughs> Which is a weird sensation. And yet, it's not, we have the bigger stick. It's, we invented really, really, really powerful robots and gave them all the sticks and they will smite you as readily as we know that they will smite us if we act aggressively in any way. So stop being aggressive. Uh, it's. I'm never quite sure how to feel about that core of this movie. Our, our main character, played by Michael Rennie? Uh, I think it's just pronounced Rennie. Rennie. Played by Michael Rennie of Klaatu. Okay, there's a meme I've seen on Twitter, and that's the best way to describe it. It's, it's a Venn diagram of everything that can start with, hey, buddy. And that's, uh, like, petting a dog, 
comforting a child and starting a fight. <laughs> and, 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 and Klaatu has all three of those down pat. He is here to tell you if like that, that, you know, you will be smote humans. He also spends a, a large amount of the movie literally saying, Oh yeah, I can, I can watch the kid for the day. And he is generally kind of friendly to everybody most of the time and it has that same sort of energy where it's like i don't know which way you're gonna go with each sentence but i'm intrigued <laughs> to see where it's happening you're right he fits all of those categories and to all of humanity he he has he's got this stern message but as an individual we see Klaatu have this kind of charmed paternalistic isn't that adorable kind of view? Ah, oh, isn't that cute? They locked me in a room and thought it was going to keep me here. Ah, oh, how adorable. They have automobiles and, sp- and and aircraft. Oh, absolutely. He also does kind of have that like player who has who is in the sequel game, but his pl- but the game is designed for new players. It's like learn how to do thing. I oh, yeah, I'm already in the menus and fixing this. Do not worry. It's like, "Oh, look at that." And it's interesting because we learn that Klaatu and his people have been monitoring Earth's radio broadcasts for a long time. That's why he speaks perfect English and presumably a lot of other languages as well. But even though he has monitored our broadcasts for a long time, he seemed to expect a very different reception than he got. Because he showed up, he lands his spaceship on the Washington Mall, and gets out and has this strange device in his hand, which we later learn was supposed to be a gift for the president, which would allow him to to study life on other planets. He assumes the president directly does more stuff than this. But even more, but before he gets out of the ship, it is surrounded by troops and howitzers and tanks. And as soon as he makes some vaguely threatening gesture with this device that he's holding in his hands, the gift he's shot yeah he seems to be surprised by this i think he expected to have a more welcoming diplomatic uh reception and instead he has to spend the whole movie trying to figure out people and try to figure out how to get his message across because he will not give his message to just one country he will not talk to the president about why he's here He wants the heads of state of all of the Earth's nations all together in one place so that he can give them the message all at once, make sure they all got the clear message directly from him, and as he puts it, not feed into any of their suspicions and paranoias by talking to one group and not another. So we, we really don't learn why he's there and what his message is until well into the movie. Honestly, like that's one of those things like I I really like in the opening how international they make it because they do this fun thing of smoothly transitioning from nation to nation, language to language as they talk about this thing orbiting the earth suddenly. Yeah, it's coming in at 4000 miles an hour, which is just mind-boggling. Absolutely. And he makes a big deal of how he doesn't want to work with just one nation. And yet, and yet he lands in america in washington dc your landing spot alone implies interaction with nations yeah i mean if if he wants to be absolutely neutral i know where he should have landed and it's a very different movie where's that he should have landed in the antarctic at the closest to the center he can because the Antarctic <laughs> is in t- neutral territory cut into wedges across nations. And it was by that time as well. You could have landed there and been on the ground of as many places as possible so no one can claim you. So he lands. This is 1951. He lands in the Antarctic. And then waits how many months for people to show up and talk to him or anybody who's authorized to talk to him? Enough. <laughs> I, I, I understand. This is me getting weirdly nitpicky, but it's like... <sighs> I mean, maybe near the United Nations or something? Yeah. There, there are uh, let, better places than a stone's throw from the White House. Yeah, perform a water landing so you're in international waters. <laughs> Maybe from analyzing our communications, he figured that the United States had the best chance of 
gathering lots of of other nations together. I I think again, even if he wanted to choose one country in 1951, there are more neutral countries that he could have chosen that might have had a better chance of that. I don't know. Yeah. It's fascinating though. Yeah. And it it it's set there so that we can have these relatable characters for your American audience to then int- for him to then interact with, which I completely understand. Yeah, it's it's also it's a movie made by 20th Century Fox. Of course it's in America. Exactly. <laughs> if it had been made by a British studio, he would have landed in Hyde Park or somewhere in London. But he him getting out and kind of expecting this to go well does and and it not going well does lead to one of the coolest introductions in the film. Because the moment he gets shot out walks the guy on the poster, the kind of iconic character for this film, Gort. Gort is is a, an imposing character. Absolutely, big, sleek metal man with a with a mono visor going on. Who's just? He immediately starts firing laser beams and melting guns. Yeah, he melts. The tanks and the howitzers and the the rifles and sidearms of the soldiers who are there doesn't harm the soldiers, just disintegrates the hardware. It's purely disarming, both mechanically and socially disarming. And and then, of course, we also get the famous line spoken in the alien language, Klatu Barada Nikto. Which his, our main character's name is Klaatu, so it's it's him saying something, and the Barada Nikto, I guess, is something of like a, like, Klaatu is okay, I guess. Well, we only no, we only get Klaatu Barada Nikto later on in the movie. What does he say the first we time? Hear, he says other things to Gort. He'll say Gort, and then something in his alien language, like like Gort Berengi that. Berengi probably means come with me or something like that because we hear him say that. We we don't actually hear Klaatu tell Gort Klaatu Barada Nikto. We don't? I thought that's no. what he said when he got shot. No. What does he, he essentially say? I, he says Gort something else, and I think it's basically Gort go easy on him. Gort don't hurt him too much. Okay. But I, I think that and we'll talk we'll talk about the Gort the, the uh the Clytuberata Nikto. I think the Clytuberata Nikto is somebody coming up to Gort and saying, Hey, Gort, Clytu's in trouble. Ah. Oh, you're performing the Lassie role. Yeah, see, Clytu assigns a human to play the, the Lassie role. <laughs> Clytu <laughs> fell down a well. <laughs> so rather than getting a chance to meet expeditiously with all the, the Earth's heads of state, Clatu uh, winds up in uh, Walter Reed uh, Army Medical Center. Yeah, he just he gets taken to the hospital because we shot him. He recovers very quickly because he had some of his own super medicinal uh, salve with him. And we learn that most of his physiology is the same as a person's. Yes, same lungs, heart, everything else. Some great scenes with the the doctors at Walter Reed. Uh, looking at his X-rays, talking about his health, learning that. Klaatu is 70-something years old, and he looks like he's maybe 35 or so, because uh, the life expectancy on his planet is about 150 or, or more. And they're talking about, gee, their, their medicine is so much better than ours, while they're sitting around in an outer room lighting up cigarettes. That's the sort of fun, subtle things this movie does. I honestly don't know. I mean, this is 1951. Cigarette ads were all over TV, and nobody was acknowledging the real dangers of cigarette smoking much at the time. Was this a pointed commentary about the health effects of cigarettes and how backwards our medicine is not to address that? Or is it something that we can see the, the bizarre irony of decades later and it wasn't part of the message in 1951. I honestly don't know. That's a good question. No matter what, that scene is another instance where this is a movie that does pay attention to its details. It pays attention to the internationality of the uh, event. It pays attention to the doctors checking him out and noting this. Even if his similar human physiology 
actually doesn't play a role much later. He could have been, you know, oh yeah, he's got two hearts. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have actually changed anything, I think, about how the movie went down. But they pay attention to, this would be something we'd look at here. Right. This is how this would interact. It, it's not extraneous. It's, it's realistic in terms of the, the detail level, in terms you, of its granularity, in my opinion. I think you're right about that, and that really does make this movie seem very real it, when it gets down to those details. I do think it would have changed the movie if, if Klaatu had been less human, though. I think the fact that he was so very human made it clear that anything that his people had achieved, we can aspire to, Earth, Earth humans can aspire to and achieve as well. It's not that they have gigantic brains and super physiology and that's how they could develop all these things and why they can live to 150. It's just that they have focused on bettering themselves and their society. So humans can do this, which means you can, you humans from Earth could do this as well. I guess I, mm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the physiology difference would have, would have invalidated the other part as much, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. It, I, it, it would have softened that message. It wouldn't necessarily have invalidated it, but I think it would have made that message a little weaker. And I, I think I, that is one of the messages of this movie. I get what you're saying. But as far as the importance of, of the detail and what details even those minor characters would have noticed, you're absolutely right. It's, it's brilliant in the way that it focuses on those. It, it uses granularity of, of, of detail as world building. There's these little bits when he then you know, runs away from the hospital and goes and hides out by literally getting a room at a place and just being a person for a little while out in the city. There's these little things just about going about and doing things in the city and living in this inn and such, which are, are small interactions, day-to-day -day things, but seeing him get to do them is part of the entire point of the story and part of showing him interacting with and seeing what humans are currently like. Oh, and we have to acknowledge when he escapes from the hospital... He apparently stole some clothes from the base uh, cleaning business, and they were clothes that belonged to a major carpenter. So that's the name that he adopts. So we've got a, 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 a powerful being coming to Earth with a message of peace, giving us the choice of redemption, and he comes in the guise of a carpenter. Ah, uh, yeah. They're, they're getting a little heavy-handed. They do get heavy-handed there. With messianic symbolism here. But <laughs> <laughs> Jesus didn't have a laser-wielding robot. <laughs> Would have been a very different book. I can imagine the painting, though. <laughs> Some of the paintings I've seen over the past years, I could imagine one in which Jesus is backed up by a, a laser-shooting robot. <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, he decides that, gee, these people are not responding the way I expected. Maybe I should learn more about them. And he spends his time among normal people. And this kind of introduces us to an entire other little cast of characters. An entire separate story that is now intersecting with his grand world-changing stuff. Because we have... Patricia Neal as Helen Benson and uh, young Billy Gray as Bobby Benson. Billy Gray, who went on to be do a lot of TV and movies. I think he was on Father Knows Best for many, many seasons. But, uh, but he's great as, as a kid in this. And so much of the interaction that we see uh, with, uh, between Klaatu and people is him talking with Bobby. Bobby kind of becomes the other main character in some ways. Oh, and we also meet the other people who live in this boarding house, one of whom is a Mr. Krull. Krull. So I have yet to figure out the details, but I'm starting to formulate a theory by which The Day the Earth Stood Still is part of the Krull cinematic universe. <laughs> Maybe Krull, the long-awaited Krull 2, could be the Beast versus Gort. 
Oh, goodness, is Gort made of glaive stuff? <laughs> or maybe a glaive is the only thing that could harm Gort. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> this movie does also have a bit of a road trip doesn't seem right. Tourism doesn't seem right. But it, it diverts remarkably quickly into this little like about town bit where he's in the boarding house no one can take care of bobby so yeah i'll take bobby out to see things and you wind up with this alien's perspective and this child's perspective on all these things they see in the city and i kind of get the impression that he's relating to bobby so well because he came prepared to relate to earthlings and earthlings are childlike to somebody like Klaatu in the first place. There's not that much difference between an adult educated human and a a fifth grader. Yeah, they they're on they when you're that high above in terms of educational level apparently, the the difference between those and the humans is minuscule. But there's one person of higher intellect that Klaatu decides to go see having heard about him from Bobby this is where Klaatu formulates the idea that, you know, he can't get politics to listen to him, but he might be able to get scientists and uh, researchers and those sorts of fields to do so because their focus is more on the advancement and they're more willing to share information with each other it, compared to the, the separated and internally antagonistic uh, politics, which... I think is a fascinating take. I'm not sure how well he expects them to be able to organize that fast, but it kind of almost works. So it's a good plan. And he goes to see this professor Barnard because Bobby says, well, he must be the smartest man in the world. And I like, I kind of like the scene. They go to professor Barnard's house and like every place they need to go is within walking distance of, of, the spaceship apparently and they go to barnard's house and he's not there so they they break into his study and go goodwill hunting on his blackboard with some advanced problem in celestial mechanics that he was he was on the wrong track and uh and Klaatu writes on the blackboard and sets him straight as kind of a calling card this is where the fact that Klaatu can come across kind of smug really shines, actually. <laughs> oh, yes. Because he gets caught by the uh, you know, by the secretary or... Yeah, it's a Barnard's secretary. Barnard's secretary. He's like, how are you here? What are you doing? What's going on? And Klaatu is just like, like, no, no, no. He's going to want to talk to me. Grabs Barnard's pen and Barnard's notebook off of Barnard's desk and writes a note of where <laughs> to find him there. It's like, yeah. don't erase that. He's going to want it. It's like, <sighs> there's just this grin of like, ah, yeah. <laughs> look, at, look at this kid. Ah, he's trying to do math. <laughs> <laughs> and Bobby kind of puts that in perspective later when, when, Later that night or, or the next day, Klaatu is helping Bobby with his homework and with his arithmetic. And then he's explaining to his mom how they went to see Professor Barnard. And, and, and Mr. Carpenter helped him, Mr. Professor Barnard, with his arithmetic, too. <laughs> and, and the mom's look of like, wait, what? Is, is, <laughs> is the perfect reaction to that moment. Because to, to Klaatu, it's, it's kind of all the same. To everyone else, that's a big leap. That does open up the weird question of the fact that when you're part of an intergalactic society, you wind up with history books full of multiple instances of first discovery of the same concept. Oh, I mean, here, I on like the, that. here on the planet Earth alone, we've got almost simultaneous invention of the telephone in two different locations. Right, and we've got a parallel development of, of calculus. And but for every single one of these planets to wind up getting to the technological level to meet each other, they all have to have made the same thing first on their planet at some time. So you wind up with this list of all of these people having done this first individually before they were united. So every planet has its Isaac Newton. Exactly. I like that. That, that is really cool. And it's one of those things where it's like when you're looking at him being able to do this, it's like... He is not begrudging 
Barnard for trying to do this. And he's not giving him the answer outright. He's fixing part of it to show him the next step so he can keep going down the right path of it. Because I think he expects Barnard to wind up in the book as the guy who invented this thing needed for intergalactic travel on Earth. <laughs> That's the... There's, if, he, if he could have just solved it, instead he put him in the right direction, which is a different phrase, a different move that Klaatu does. And it's, it's subtle, but that's one of those moments where it implies more to me than just the one thing. Yeah, I like that. I'm kind of imagining the Wikipedia entry that's you know, codification of gravity and the laws of motion and it's just a list of all the people from all the different planets who did it for their civilization exactly i like it oh and speaking of of intergalactic travel or inter interstellar travel or, or interplanetary travel i have to take a page from your book ian oh yes because i found myself trying to do the math Ooh, yes do but the math at one point when he is is talking to harley the secretary to the president he talks about having traveled 250 million miles and that astonishes Harley, as it probably should. But then I was saying, well, where does that mean he is from? Because 250 million miles isn't that far. On terms of averages, 250 million miles would put him farther than Mars, but not as far as Jupiter, somewhere around the asteroids. So I'm not sure where Klaatu's planet is supposed to be to be i think at like their greatest distance maybe mars could be close to 250 million miles from earth but um i think they just picked a number that seemed big and and ran with it well yeah i mean i guess that could be where he started traveling on the final leg yeah maybe they've got a base that's orbiting the sun somewhere uh, in between Mars and Jupiter. They've got a mothership, and he came from there. Yeah. That's possible. Or, and this is the kind of ad hoc rationalization I, I was trained in by, uh, by 60s science fiction TV, maybe he's talking about the, dist the, the subjective distance that he traveled, but really he was going through a wormhole, so it was farther across space from our point of view, but it was 250 million miles from his. I don't know. Yeah, it, it definitely is probably arbitrary number, but I love the <laughs> fact that you were do, trying to do the math too. So thank you. Yay. But the, th the problem for Klaatu is in some ways, as he starts to try to get this plan off the ground of getting the scientists together, he tips his hand as to who he actually is too much. And... He, he's, been, he's been going around trying to pay for stuff in diamonds, which he has pockets full of. He's caught multiple times spouting science and math well beyond anyone else can. And he's just a little out of touch. Not completely a fish out of water, but obviously not from around here. And those pieces start being fit together, especially by the people at our boarding house who are already on high alert. Thanks to the news media and the TV, getting them spooked in different directions about this spaceman. And part of the problem is the longer he is gone, the more wild and crazy. These stories of what this spaceman is, is becoming. And having left the scene he no longer has control of the narrative that the public is hearing about who he is and why he's here and what's going on. Yeah, the news that he was in custody in the hospital, of course, got out. And then the fact that he had escaped got out. So why would he escape if he's not some kind of a monster that wants to harm us? And that seems to be the general consensus. And you kind of get to hear bits of a game of telephone going on in the background where wild and crazy ideas will be stated. And the next thing you hear is kind of a, a take on that that is wilder and crazier until he's planning invasion and eating people and <laughs> there's just wildness going on. And he, at that point, there's no recovering the story of why he's actually here. People are, are freaking themselves out 
all on their own, just fine. And Rennie plays Klaatu's response to this very well, I think, because it, it starts out when he's hearing these things on the radio at the boarding house. It's kind of that, oh, isn't this kind of quaint and ridiculous, these stories they're making up. And then he seems to change over a short time to realizing, no, this is the way Earthlings think, and this is the way they think of me, and how on earth are they going to be able to listen to the message that I have? He kind of gets himself more scared seeing how frenzied the humans can make themselves because he came here to tell them to not make dangerous weapons and they're proving <laughs> themselves r- rather rather good at getting themselves psyched out and psyched up at the same time and they have these weapons oh no i think he's much more hopeful after his first meeting with uh, professor barnhart who, yes as Clyde predicted did indeed want to see the person who was able to help solve this problem in celestial mechanics. And he quickly gets on the same page with Barnard. Barnard accepts the fact that he's from another planet and uh, proposes the idea, let's get all of, all of the world's top scientists and the leaders uh, in thought from, from all different fields together to hear your message if the politicians won't hear it. But Barnard then suggests, we need something that's going to make people pay attention. Oh, yes. And that actually comes to, is, is where we get the, the film's title from. The demonstration that Klaatu thinks up at Barnard's suggestion, because he wanted something that was dramatic, undeniable, yet not destructive. And the answer is, for 30 minutes, halting all electricity. Neutralizes electricity all around the entire world for half an hour. And that's also one of the other moments where the little details they use are very important to me. Because a lot of stories that might use this will have the big scary moment that comes when everything stops and the world stands still, as the title implies. This movie bothers to show a lot of little moments of this happening and explains what was and what wasn't exempt. Yeah, it's the entire world, all of the electricity, except... Hospitals and planes are still working. Yeah, planes in flight and hospitals. Maybe others, but those are the two that the military guy mentions. And it's these little things where it's like, if you think about... There's a trope called fridge logic and fridge horror which I'm a fan of, actually, in most cases. And the idea is, you know, you watch something, and then later that night, you're, you know, go to the fridge to get a midnight snack. And having had this idea in the back of your head all, all evening, you suddenly realize something doesn't work. So the fridge logic, it's like, that, that doesn't make sense. Or you realize the terrifying implications of something, the fridge horror. And this movie kind of does the step of like waiting and thinking out all of those implications and answering them inside the film itself. It avoids the fridge horror of what halting electricity would have meant by saying Klaatu has this planned so that it doesn't do the devastating things it could. It's purely a demonstration of strength not something that harms anyone. And that's good. That's, that's the sort of thing where mishandled, it can actually ruin a story for me and doing it correctly is important. And I think is, I think it's a good move. Yeah. That's one of the many examples of how this script, the screenplay is very tightly written and very thoughtfully put together. It was uh, Edmund H. North wrote the screenplay for this. That was based on a, a short story by who was a short story by harry bates but yeah it's it it takes the time to give us those details and also that sequence that we get while the earth is standing still it's another time kind of like at the beginning when the spaceship was first coming into radar uh, uh, range of earth we get this montage that's showing how broad this effect is and how it's affecting people of all different cultures and all different places they go from the detail to a montage. And sometimes those montages are montages of details. 
We get somebody, we get people on an assembly line make building cars. We get somebody trying to make a milkshake in an electric mixer. All these things that we take for granted that don't work. The one thing I'm not sure of is if they show Western Australia or anything in a certain strip of China. <laughs> because this entire thing takes place at noon Washington DC time to 12:30 and that's midnight on the other side of the world <laughs> and I don't know if that strip of people was going to notice anything. I don't know. I guess night watchmen will suddenly have something to uh to report. Absolutely. <laughs> like the only bit of fridge logic i can find is like wait a minute there's a strip that's not gonna get that because well, of time zones i guess you have to pick some time maybe you could pick a time when uh the least populated places would be uh would be in the middle of the night but yeah and if, if you get if you do it as a rolling thing across noon everywhere people are going to be able to brace themselves at some point right anybody to who if it was rolling anybody to whom it had happened would suspect the people to whom it hasn't happened yet, of doing it. Yeah, that's the problem. If it happened first in Moscow, they're going to assume it's somebody in NATO. If it happened first in the U.S. and not in Eurasia, they're going to assume it's the Russians or China. But this demonstration does make an impression, and I think it, it is going to serve the purpose that, uh, that Barnard thinks it will in illustrating the importance of this to the people he's gathering but it also makes the military very uh, scared. Many, many times more eager to capture Klaatu alive if possible, but we're going to capture him regardless. So it becomes, suddenly it becomes this tense thriller where Klaatu is trying to remain free and evade the military long enough to go to this meeting of scientists who are gathering at his spaceship in Washington, D.C. To, to deliver his message. The military has gotten where he is. He has revealed himself now to the people at the inn as to who he actually is. And all of these things are coming to a head yeah. now. And well, I guess, yeah, well, he, he kind of accidentally reveals himself to Bobby, who then starts telling people, because Bobby knows something's going on and follows him to the spaceship. And then he reveals himself to, uh, um, to Mrs. Benson. Yeah. And so all of these different threads and story beats are coming to a head as he tries to get to this meeting and it's a kind of cool chase yeah it's it it takes too long sometimes i watch it and i think this could have been tightened up in editing but i do like the way that they show this very very meticulous plan of the military to use the the way that washington dc is laid out to track him once they know what taxi cab he's in to track him through the city and close off more and more ways that he could get get away from them until finally they can close in and trap him in like in a one block area the way this chase goes down is a lot more like good quality asymmetric board game <laughs> than it is fast and furious yes this yes. is this is you know one person with all the information but with a slow methodical way of applying it and one person with the information they need and who can move faster and trying to get around each other and there's this this proper cat and mouse going on for a moment and it's during this that we we hear Klaatu Barada Nikto because he's riding in the taxi cab with Mrs. Benson and he's saying I'm I'm worried about what is going to happen if something happens to me and what is Gort going to do? Because Gort could destroy the planet if he wanted to, and that's probably what he would do if if I were were killed. So if something happens to me, I need you to go to Gort and tell him this phrase, Klaatu Barada Nikto. I think that probably means go get Klaatu before you do anything else, which will at least forestall Gort doing something drastic. And give Klaatu a chance to do something else. Yeah, Klaatu needs revival. And yes, something does happen to Klaatu. He gets shot again! Yes, this time, apparently fatally. Yeah. And, but in the meantime, Mrs. Benson managed to escape and deliver that message to Gort. And Gort's response is to march through the wall to pick up Klaatu's body, if I remember correctly? 
Yeah, he was being held in a jail cell somewhere until they could get him to a, a medical examiner, I guess. And Gort shows up and melts the wall and takes Klaatu back to the uh, the spaceship. Like an unenthusiastic Kool-Aid man. <laughs> oh, and before that, the, the military had encased Gort in some kind of indestructible plastic. Uh, like, you know, he's slabbed and grated. <laughs> Gort's got a, got a 9.8 Beckett rating. <laughs> But of course, Gort melts through that and then melts through the wall of the jail to get Klaatu and bring him back. Ah, dang it. Now I gotta check if there is, in fact, a Gort Funko Pop. (laughs) Oh, there's gotta be. It would have to be half again as tall as any of the other Funko Pops, though. It's not that brand, but it looks like it is that tall. (laughs) Ah, cool. So Gort brings the lifeless Klaatu back to the spaceship and brings him back to life. Yeah. Meanwhile, after after Mrs. Benson had given Gort the message, Gort brings her into the spaceship, I guess, to keep her safe. Although it's this wonderful tense scene in which, of course, she's terrified. And then she sees Gort bring Klaatu back into the spaceship. Klaatu's dead, puts him in a machine, and eventually Klaatu gets up. This is one of those things where I, I can never quite remember because I've seen the poster for this film enough times. Does the moment on the poster ever properly happen? Because a lot of the posters show Gort holding a woman who is a little bit more proper damsel in distress. I don't know if it's supposed to be Mrs. Benson looking all surprised and ah, like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking I, at a, I, a poster here. It's a blonde a woman with long blonde hair wearing a very tight, skimpy dress screaming while Gort fires a laser beam at something off screen. No, this, this does not happen. It's Mrs. Benson in her, uh, her, her very respectable, uh, secretary's suit is picked up by Gort and carried into the spaceship. That's the closest we get. Yeah. I say we get as if we're looking for that. Honestly, in terms of like that kind of dramatic, careful carrying, Like, the poster implies this, like, bodice ripper romance between Gort and and this lady, and instead, (laughs) we watch Gort actually very carefully and tenderly carry Klaatu in much more, and it's a very different kind of thing when the poster primes you for Gort to be this romantic interest character, and he's responding like this to Klaatu. It implies (laughs) a very different thing. Oh, that's interesting. I never took that poster to suggest that Gort was a romantic interest. I thought he was just a terrible monster, and... I, I... I don't know anymore that there's, <laughs> but it's got that sort of styling though. Whatever the poster led us to expect, it's not what happens in this movie. Not what happens in but this movie. But if there's if there's anything that doing this podcast should have taught you is that there is an enormous gulf, far more than 250 million miles between the promotion for a motion picture and what's actually in the motion picture. I want to get the same people who made that awful and completely tone-deaf song for the Sinbad film <laughs> to have made a song for this movie. I want to find out what like <laughs> pop ballad they would have done for the day the earth. So you want still. this kind of, uh, of, of sexy torch song about Gort or Klaatu or both. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know which one it would be. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give that some thought. It, it, it's absolutely the sort of wild and completely not what the film is marketing that would have happened though. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the, the poster also shows a giant wrinkly green hand palming the earth as if to stop it in its rotation. That also does not happen. The poster for that, this film, in terms of the hand, somehow implies Space Jam more than it implies the day the earth stood still <laughs> as it holds the earth like a basketball. They wanted to, to sell the science fiction meant monster horror movies at the time, and that's how they wanted to show this. And it really isn't. It uses, it uses some aspects of the thriller, but it's not a monster movie. Yeah, no, it's the, the day the earth stood still has more cinematically in common with the razor's edge than it does the thing. And interesting, talking about the razor's edge and the spiritual aspects, we do learn that Klaatu and his people are theists. Yeah. 
when uh, when she witnesses Gort using this machine to bring Klaatu back to life, she's saying he has the power over life and death. And Klaatu explains, nope, that power is reserved for the almighty spirit. But this machine can restore life for a limited amount of time. We'd have no idea how long. Yeah. But it, it's it's enough time for Klaatu to give his dramatic, we gave all of our authority to the robots and the robots work as our... As, as the the enforcement force yeah he says this there's a, a a robot police force that patrols the planets and spaceships and takes devastating action against any aggressor at the first sign of aggression which is i want to know exactly how they define aggression yeah that's awkward Th- this is the point of the movie where i start like I don't know how to feel about this part. It's, it's I mean, awkward. It's we have no way of knowing. Uh, now, granted, it's it's good that we Klaatu says we're not claiming to have achieved perfection, but we have a system and it works. But I'd like to know more about this system. He seems to be s- suggesting it is some kind of utopia, at least compared to Earth. But whose idea of a utopia is it? A libertarian's idea of a utopia? Is it a Marxist's idea of a utopia? How, what kind of a society do you have? Because you can't just say no aggression without answering some fundamental questions of economics as well. Yeah. This is where the smug look at these, look at these little humans kind of <laughs> m- mood we've gotten from Klaatu falls apart for me. Because there is, there is a whole lot of we have, we have it better without a lot of explaining, and we're, and we're certain it's better for X. And we certainly get an angrier Klaatu giving that speech than I think we would have had they listened to him at the beginning. Yeah. It's well, like, gosh darn it, I came here to do a job. You shot me twice. You <laughs> killed me once. I am going to just finish this job and get out of here. Klaatu gets remarkably salty in this game. <laughs> to, to, use, to use some, some online uh, gaming parlance there. It's, you know. Like, I, I have seen people respawn from a game with that same sort of attitude where it's like, <laughs> stop hitting me. I just want to get to the point and claim the objective. (laughs) And he makes it very clear. It's, it's not, he doesn't even include the option of just keep to yourselves. It's join us or be destroyed. Yeah. He, he, he becomes a, you agree to our terms and service policy (laughs) pop up (laughs) to the entire earth for just a moment there. And then leaves. Yeah. By developing rockets and atomic power, you have accepted the following conditions. <laughs> Enable cookies? Like, where's the no button on Gort? <laughs> and that's at a very abrupt end. He delivers the speech, gets into his ship, and he's gone. Roll credits. Yeah. The entire ending can feel a little rushed because of that. The dramatic speech and credits ending style is more is something you'd see more in films of this time, but it's not always clean... It's not always a clean ending, I think. Yeah, it's being a 1951 movie. The credits are all front-loaded. We get those all at the very beginning. So there's not much other than, a, a, I think, 20th Century Fox and a screen. Yeah. Now, before we move on to other things, I, I do want to mention a few things about just how well-made this is as a film. I think it's spectacularly well-shot. The, the composition of some shots is, I mean, this is an overused term, but it is very painterly composition where you got these combinations of background and foreground, tremendous use of light. And a, a lot, there are a lot of scenes that remind me of Edward Hopper paintings, just these urban landscapes where something is not quite right. Yeah, it's got that. <sighs> and this is a film that being in black and white actually kind of Im- helps it i think because it gives it that unreal that that unrealistic uncertainty because everything is washed out like that yes very much i mentioned how it uses a lot of the tropes of the thriller specifically a noir thriller in many ways and the sound design as there were i don't know i want to track sometime who was working on these all, all these different movies we talked about the sound design in war of the worlds from just two years later and the sound design in this movie it's extremely good lots of good strange alien sound design but also just some good sound design to create mood and tension 
and the music in this movie, I oh, think, is yeah. amazing. The score is by uh, Bernard Herrmann, and Herrmann is a very influential composer. In addition to this movie, he made a lot of movies with Alfred Hitchcock, did the score for Psycho, I mean, one of the most iconic bits of music ever. Also, North by Northwest, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo. Excellent stuff. He also did uh, music for The Twilight Zone. Oh! He has so much influence. Yeah. And, and the score in this is particularly good. It's, it's really powerful. And I want to point out how many scenes, I mentioned the sound design, there are so many scenes in which we get absolutely no sound. There is no environmental sound. There is no dialogue. All we get are the images and that score. And it heightens the tension so incredibly. Like right after Mrs. Benson delivers the message to Gort, suddenly we're getting no sound. We're getting no dialogue. It's just movement and image and that score. And there, all the way up to the point, I think, when, um, when Gort brings Klaatu back to the spaceship and we start to hear the sound of the machines. That makes it, makes it so creepy and so tense when we can't even hear her screaming, when we can see that she's screaming. All we get is this music. It's one of those soundtracks that gets into your mind, but doesn't... It doesn't it, it, it's integrated. There's some soundtracks where you're hearing it and it feels like, oh, here's the music on top of it. This is, here is the tone of what you're seeing. It happens to be this, perfectly this song, this music. And that means that, like, I never noticed the soundtrack as something separate. The soundtrack was just part of seeing and experiencing the film. Yeah, that, you, you make a good point there. I think movies from the last even 30 years, if they wanted to do something like that with a scene, they probably would select a song, a pop song. Yeah. And use that in place of sound design or dialogue. And here we just get key parts of Herman's score. The concept of the needle drop is a moment where a song you know is played in order to accentuate a scene and usually synchronized with it. Mm-hmm. Calling this the anti-needle drop sounds wrong, but it's because this is supposed to be smooth and not as as jarringly, hi, there's song, as a needle drop is. Yeah, and you have a composer like this, he's out there saying, I'm going to drop my own needle. Yeah, exactly. On my own music. <laughs> hold, hold my needle. <laughs> He can do it. He can, he can make that work. And that's, that's one of the fun parts. So I tipped my hand earlier and yeah. probably many times throughout this conversation, but it is a movie. So, uh, screen or no screen. See, I, having seen this now three times with you, I'm intrigued to note that when I first saw it, I was just kind of, Oh, this is cool. And as I've gotten older, I can appreciate and enjoy breaking down the cinematography and the the skill at the the design of this film more and more. But its lack of nuance in a few like I, I love how its cinematography and storytelling wise is able to have that granular detail. But there's some things about its final message and the way it approaches that which make me more and more uncomfortable because they they don't quite click right for me. And so I'm going to say screen, but it's like where you're at in your own media assessment really does change this film. It's great no matter what, but I don't think it. I can say you're going to have a this kind of experience because it's been different for me each time. And I become, I, I, I grow more in love with certain parts of this film and I grow more concerned with other parts the more I've seen it. That, that's very interesting to hear you talk about the way your response to this movie has changed, because uh, that tracks with my experience of this movie. I've probably seen this seven or eight times by now, but the first times I saw it, I was like 10 years old watching t late night <gasps> Saturday TV. It's, it's a giant robot with a laser head, and he's got a spaceship. And it's, it was just amazing. 
And then seeing it five years later, oh, there's kind of a message here. Seeing it five years later, oh, there's kind of a message here. And he hit us <laughs> over the head with it. Yeah. And then it's five years later, it's, wow, this is really well constructed. And then it's, yeah, it's really well constructed, but they could have done this a little less clumsily in or because they did this other thing so much better. So yeah, I definitely have had a changing response to this uh, over time. So I, it's kind of a screen. It's kind of a multi-screen it. Yeah. It's, I, ki- it's, it's, it's hard to place in that sense, but I definitely think you should see this just because it's influential and it's well-made. Yeah, it's screen it. That doesn't mean you're going to love everything about it 100% and without reservation, but by all means, watch this movie if you haven't seen it yet. Oh, yeah. This is one of my highest screen recommendations from the, any of the movies we've watched. But that leads to another question. Revive, reboot, or rest in peace? Well, as we have to do anytime we're doing this and, it, and something like this exists, there was a remake do of I, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Do I have to acknowledge that? Well, it does star the internet's... Uh, the internet's uh, crush, Keanu Reeves. It does, and I have nothing against Keanu Reeves. He seems like an amazingly great guy. I would even say that his performance in that remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still is a good performance. It's a different take on Claw 2, but it's a good performance. It's just not a good movie. It's not. It is. The few things that almost kind of work are the things that are most directly and clearly lifted from the original. And everything else just falls apart. So, yeah, um, they, they made a remake, and it's terrible. The t- and I do not recommend that anybody watch it. The 2008 version feels like the movie people assume the original to be if they've <laughs> never seen the original. Maybe. Maybe. In that kind of, like, it's cheesy in that way. Yep. But Revive, Reboot, Rest in Peace is interesting with this film, because... I mean, a reboot is is trying to do a better version of the 2008, but if we're saying this movie's well-constructed on the technical side, you're taking the risk of not doing as good a technical job in a, in a hope to improve some of the few clunky over uh, parts of the message portion, which I don't think is worth the risk. A revival is, I guess... I guess it's joining the Galactic Council or whatever, whoever, whoever sent Klaatu or not. So it's either it's either bureaucracy or fist fighting Gort, which are very different movies and two very different directions to go. I could suppose I could imagine that humanity responds to Klaatu's ultimatum by choosing to be non-aggressive and to join this federation of planets and then we get a movie about them adventuring through the the galaxy that's not what i want from a continuation of the day the earth stood still absolutely it's it's not the day the earth stood still at that point i mean a story about people adventuring around representing a federation of planets and using advanced technologies to contact other worlds and go other places sounds interesting, but it's not this story's follow-up in that sense. It's not the same thing. It's not. So I really don't need a revival, or and I don't need a remake. The only thing I could imagine them doing that the original didn't do was answering some of those questions we talked about earlier. What kind of civilization is it? What kind of economics is it that Klaatu's people are, are, are... dealing with and answering those questions i can't imagine that happening without just making it an even stronger and therefore just dreary polemic than it already is it'll become talking about the wonders of marxism or the wonders of libertarianism or the wonders of whatever it is or we find out that things aren't so great where Klaatu came from and it's all about the horrors of some economic system or another and that kind of misses the point. It gets bogged down. I can't imagine that movie being told, you know, uh, that story being told in a way that wasn't just dreadful, whatever they decide to tell. Yeah, there, the one option I can find is if we look at those gaps we're seeing in, its, in what it doesn't say and how that leaves these questions, 
there is a small storytelling needle that you could thread about the fact the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of millions of gorts out there all all being put in charge of keeping this you know galactic federation of things safe and if someone points out you know or, or finally asks the right question to the gorts and the gorts all realize they don't agree and you wind up with the fall of the fall of a nation story where this giant organization who has not talked about this question finally has this <laughs> que- has this discussion and it goes wrong. Wow. That's an interesting story because it's the only way to properly make a Gort, make a versus Gort story is if it's Gort versus Gort. But that is a fine needle to thread and it really does require the and Klaatu's entire mess and Klaatu showed up to tell us to join a group that didn't have their own stuff together well enough to be worth joining. And I do feel like that undermines a little bit of the good of this message to tell another interesting story. But I mean, you would have to be so precise to make that movie work yeah. and not feel awful. That would be tough, but it's the first thing I've ever thought of or heard of in this case that at least it's interesting. This yeah. Civil war of Gort against Gort. That's that is interesting. Yeah. I don't know what to feel about that. I kind of wanting to say rest in peace because I don't think it's like taking that one in a million <laughs> shot of getting that right doesn't feel like it's worth the risk, but who knows? I'm going to enjoy thinking about that idea. But when it comes to movie making or storytelling, I'm going to say rest in peace. Yeah. Let let 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still rest in peace. Go see it, but we don't need it to be changed. We don't need it to be updated. It is what it is, and what it is is worth seeing. Oh, yeah. It's, this is one of those movies that, that set a baseline for a lot of other films and set a tone. And the fact that the phrase, Klaatu Barada Nikto, is so ingrained into sci-fi pop culture now that it has its own separate Wikipedia page should tell you plenty about the legacy this film has. It shows up in so many other fun, cool places like uh, Army of Darkness. Yes. It's the magic words in Army of Darkness. Well, I might not have said every little syllable, but... (laughs) Wild thing. It's a line said by Dr. Robotnik in... This the new 2002 film Sonic the Hedgehog 2. There are current references happening to this film. To this <laughs> film, that is how long-reaching this has been. And that's a movie we're going to have to watch, by the way. Yes, that'll be we a Patreon will. bonus. That'll be a Patreon bonus. Coming Sonic up. 2. But yeah, it, it that's that's going to remain in the culture indefinitely. I think that phrase, "Kaju Barada Nikto." But for now, I think that's that is our episode. I'm glad we finally got a chance to talk about the day the Earth stood still. Uh, yeah, I think so. So, in the meantime, where can they find you online, Dad? Oh, you can find me. Uh, most places you'll find me is by Matthew Porter. So on Twitter, by Matthew Porter. You can go to bymatthewporter.com. I'm also by Matthew Porter on uh, YouTube. Oh, and speaking of YouTube, uh, there at uh, by Matthew Porter, you will soon uh, see a video about my trip to the Roswell UFO Festival. Yeah! And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as ItemCrafting, on Twitch as ItemCraftingLive, and at ItemCrafting.com. And you can find the podcast itself on Twitter as IMMPCast. You can also find us at IMMProject.com, and that's where you'll find links to all of our past episodes, including Crawl. And uh, you'll find a link to our Discord. You will find a, a contact page. We'd love to hear from you in, in any of these places. What did you think of uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still? What do you think of the revive, reboot, or rest in peace question when it comes to this movie? And uh, you'll also find on, uh, on immproject.com a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much if you uh, can support us there. You help keep the podcast going. And recently, patrons got a special bonus episode about. The Razor's Edge, which you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. Exactly. Yeah. But it was the 1946 version of The Razor's Edge with Tyrone Power, which which neither of us had seen before. Yeah, we got, we've, we've seen both versions now, and it's very different. 
So that finishes our, our trilogy of, of the Razor's Edge. We've talked about the Bill Murray version and the Tyrone Power version and the original novel. And uh, the novel and the Tyrone Power version you can, f- you can hear about uh, on our Patreon bonuses. And you'll also find a link to our shop uh, at immproject.com. And that's if you like t-shirts, coffee mugs, other fun stuff. Anything to do with the podcast, go to that uh, URL and you'll find it. I mean, with the distance that he traveled... I don't know if it quite matches up, but maybe the alien's base is over on Phobos, and no one would have noticed it being there, because who cares about Phobos? <laughs> well, most importantly, thank you very much for downloading this episode. Thank you very much for, for listening. If you liked it, uh, check out those other things I mentioned, and let your friends know about it, or review us on, uh, on iTunes, or wherever it is you get podcasts. And please, come back in a couple of weeks for more tales of media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, podcast Barada Nikto. I mean, go find something new to watch.